All right, we're in business. Okay, here's how I want to begin. Uh, I want to begin by telling you something that happened to my friend this past year. Uh, some of you know this guy. His name's Brent Corbin. He's, he's been up here in the past. He's outside doing uh, lawn work, yard work. And uh, he's doing his thing around the backyard. I don't know, trimming hedges, watering the grass. Goes inside to take a shower. And, you know, strips down, gets naked, is getting ready to go into the shower. This is what you do, right? <laughs> Unless you're a never-nude, like Tobias from... Um, anyway. So he, he turns on the faucet and he notices that the shower pressure is a little... It's bad. So he realizes, you know, obviously with older houses, if you have two water sources going at the same time, the water pressure gets bad. So he goes out into his backyard to turn off the hose. He's been watering his yard. Closes the door behind him. He's naked. This is not abnormal, one, for him because he's weird, but also, number two, because his backyard is lined with these uh, three walls of really tall bushes. So it's not like the neighbors can see in anyway. He could theoretically lounge around his backyard naked, but here he is going, turns off the hose, turns back in, and the door's locked. And his wife is not home, and he's locked outside of his house naked. And so now he's got uh, to figure out if he can get around to the front of the house because maybe there's a chance that the front door is open. And, uh, but he doesn't know yet. So he kind of scurries to this back tool shed to try and find something to cover up himself. And uh, he can't find anything. There's no rag. There's nothing except uh, uh, like painter's uh, cellophane kind of see-through tarp stuff. So he wraps himself in that enough to make it opaque. And... Uh, he kind of mission impossibles it up to the front of the house, but now he's in another predicament because his neighborhood uh, old women like to frequently walk and jog through his particular street. So he's got to kind of watch out for you know the old ladies so he doesn't uh, you know, offend anybody or embarrass himself. And he you know ends up scurrying up to the front door and he gets in and he's able to take a shower. Now. <laughs> The reason I began by telling you that story, I originally had, um, I was going to explain the nature of stories to you, but I thought I would demonstrate it. Because the whole time I was telling that story, y'all were with me. Y'all were, you know, riveted. Anytime somebody is telling a story in a sermon or in a lecture, uh, people start tuning in. It's when they start doing all the data information stuff, that's when your brain starts wandering, but then when they say, okay, this is what happened to me this week, then we're kind of back. Why is the movie industry a multi-billion dollar industry? Why are we so connected to stories? Why do they grab our attention? Well, this is what uh, I want to propose to you tonight, that the, the nature of story is written into the very DNA of reality. It, uh, the Bible comes to us presented as a story. It is not, uh, I don't know what you thought it was, but it is primarily a story. And so what we're going to do uh, tonight and for the rest of the semester is look at the story line of Scripture, the plot line of Scripture, and see, one, why in the world that has anything to do with us, and two, why that's important. So, if you have your Bibles open to Acts 13, we're going to jump in. We're going to parachute kind of in the middle of the entire story of the Bible, right here in the middle of the uh, New Testament and read. So uh, before I read, I'm just going to remind you, here at RUF, 
uh, we're committed to the Bible. I know some of you uh, think it's a stupid book. It's an irrelevant book. And some of you think uh, God wrote it. Here at RUF, we, are, uh, we, we believe that the Bible is inspired, that God did in fact write it, and therefore we are uh, interested in seeing what it has to say to both Christians and non-Christians, to uh, people who have uh, grown up spiritual and people who are totally skeptical, because it has things to say to everybody no matter where you are. So we're just going to start with that presupposition and go on from there. So Acts 13, uh, we're going to begin in verse 14. And this is going to be a somewhat lengthy passage, so if you don't have your Bibles, just kind of buckle in and hang on. Uh, Verse 14. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt, and with mighty power he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this... God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. And then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried him out, when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And I'm, I'm going to jump down if you're following along to verse 38. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you cannot be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. This is God's word. Let me pray, and then we'll take a look at what this says. Father, we, uh, we have no hope of, of learning what this uh, long, rather obscure passage in the Bible has to do with us unless you help us. So please, we ask, Holy Spirit, please come and open up our eyes, unclog our ears, soften our hearts that these words may uh, pierce our hearts afresh, maybe for the first time, maybe for the eight millionth time. 
But we ask that you would do it because we have no hope of doing it on our own. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Okay, so I want to highlight three specific things about the story of Scripture. One, that the story is historical, that it's personal, and that it's transformational. So first, the story of Scripture is historical. Here's basically the situation in Acts 13. Paul, who is a New Testament missionary, he's traveling around, and he comes to this place called Pisidian Antioch, and he does what he typically does when he goes into a synagogue, is he begins uh, preaching, preaching from uh, the Bible. And so here's what he does, which is uh, rather interesting. Uh, He starts in verse 17. And he tells the story of the Exodus. You remember the, you know, Exodus, what is that? It's not a Disney movie. Whatever it is. Where Israel is, you know, enslaved in Egypt and they're, uh, you know, miraculously released the ten plagues. They're, what was the name of it? Prince of Egypt. Anyway. <laughs> he begins there. So here's what he says in verse 17. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt, and with mighty power he led them out of that country. Okay, so he begins with the Exodus part of the story. And then with verse 18, he kind of goes into the next chapter where they're wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. Then when you get to verse 19, it talks about them going into Canaan. So you see what he's doing, right? He's basically marching through the whole storyline of the Old Testament. In three verses, he just summarized the first five books of the Bible. And I like how in verse uh, 20, he kind of caps it off with, and all this took about 450 years. So he's, he's tracing the plot line of the story of the Bible, and he continues with uh, you know, verse 20 through 22. He starts getting into the... Um, era of the judges, which if you're looking at your Bible's table, the contents, it's essentially the next book of the Bible in sort of the order. Then he gets into the monarchy with David and Saul and all these guys. And then then he shows how the story climaxes with Jesus himself. I think that is pretty interesting that he is, as he's preaching, he is assuming that the whole Bible is a storyline. And so he picks it up right at the beginning and kind of marches through the whole thing and shows how it all kind of leads up to Jesus. It's interesting because I think most people don't even know that the Bible is a story. I think a lot of people uh, don't really connect with the idea that it is a drama that is unfolding and has unfolded across real time in real space with real people. Uh, People tend to think that the Bible is is more like an encyclopedia of uh, just sort of this collected set of data of stuff that you have to believe about God. Or maybe it's just sort of this uh, encyclopedia of of, of things that you have to do and things that you can't do. And, uh, you know, you've got to do this list and you can't do that list. You know, we all, I'm sure at some point have done this, right, where you sit down with your Bible. I know I have done this. You kind of open it up randomly close your eyes and put your finger across the page and you read that verse. And when we do that, it kind of exposes the fact that we have no real uh, assumption that it has anything to do with, with something bigger. We're sort of extracting a little verse out and we're, we're not oriented to the context or where this fits in the, in the storyline of the whole Bible. I mean, you know, we extract little verses and write them on cards and I'm not knocking that at all. I'm, I'm okay with that, but I think it's... Uh, I really am not knocking that, but I do think that it, I do think that it kind of exposes that we think that the Bible is more like an encyclopedia than it is an actual story, 
We, we tend to think that the Bible is, is, is more like Wikipedia or more like Google than it actually is CNN.com. But it is. It's a story. It is, it is, uh, it is uh, reporting something that has happened. It is a news flash. Okay. Two quick questions on this point. One, uh, why am I bringing this up? And two, what, uh, why does this matter? So one, why am I bringing this up? Um, good question. Uh, we are... <laughs> We're essentially this semester going to be following Paul's lead here. We are uh, going, to, going to spend every week looking at the basic trajectory of the storyline of the Bible, beginning at the very beginning and going all the way to the end. If you look at all of the different sermons that were preached in the book of Acts, they're all basically doing the same thing. They kind of start at the beginning and, and, and they're working their way through. I mean, preaching the gospel, if the gospel means good news, it means preaching News. It means preaching something that has happened. It's a news flash. Something has happened in real space and real time, and this is what it's about. If, if you've done any literary analysis or if you've looked at literature in your English classes, which I'm sure most of you have, um, you know that a story can be basically broken up into four different parts, four different chapters or acts or movements or wh- whatever you want to call it. You already know this. I'm just going to remind you. It begins with uh, a setting, right? You're kind of oriented to the layout. Who are the main characters? Where am I? What's going on? This is kind of the once upon a time part of a story. Or if you're watching a movie, sort of the, you know, the credits are still kind of coming up in this part. Okay, setting. Second, uh, a crisis is introduced. A problem is, is brought in that the protagonist has to fix for the rest of the story, right? You remember the movie um, uh, Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell? You know, at one of the opening scenes, he's sitting in the bathroom and he, and he hears that voice that's narrating his life. This is the introduction of the crisis, where he now has to kind of figure out what in the world is going on, where is this coming from, how do I fix this? Third part of the story, the, uh, the turning point, the climax, sort of the, the problem is fixed, there's a decisive turning point, but there's still loose ends kind of dangling around, not all the pieces are tied together, and so that leads, of course, to some people call it falling action, some resolution, basically everything's tied up, happily ever after the end. Four acts, four chapters, four movements of a basic story. Any story, essentially, at some level, more or less, has these characteristics. You can even note them when, when you come back to your dorm and somebody's telling you the story of what happened to them that day. You know, they, they kind of, if you, you know... No one would ever dissect their story like this, but you could. And here's the setting, you know, here's the climax, you know, whatever. The Bible is presented to us in the same way. It has these same basic four-fold characteristics. It begins with creation, the setting. God creates all things good and uh, orients you to uh, the, the, the goodness of the earth. But then, of course, the crisis is introduced. Theologians call it the fall. Sin kind of makes its way into the world, and the good world is ruined. Paradise is lost. This happens in the third chapter of the Bible. So the rest of the Bible, <laughs> the rest of the Bible is, God, how are you going to fix this problem? How are you going to resolve this crisis? And so it all kind of marches up to the climax, the turning point of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus himself, where sin is defeated, death is defeated, Satan is defeated. But not all of the loose ends of history are tied up, are they? I mean, there's still sin in my heart. There's still sin in your heart. There's still brokenness in the world. Okay, so when is everything going to get fixed? And that's sort of the final 
act, the final chapter of the Bible, where there's going to be a new heavens, a new earth, a renewed creation where God comes down and is with his people forever. That's the basic storyline of the Bible. It is a story. It's a drama. It's not an encyclopedia. Okay, second question. Why is this important? Uh, I want you to look at a couple verses with me real quick. Verse 26. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that the message of salvation has been sent. Notice the word, message of salvation. Verse 32. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, He fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Good news. Verse 38. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the... the, uh, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Do you notice that language of, of good news, of, of a message, of something being uh, proclaimed? Uh, this is all presupposing uh, that something has been accomplished. Something, something has happened, and the Bible is simply reporting what it has happened. The, the gospel means good news, not good advice. Think of it this way. If, uh, let's say, uh, a man has committed some terrible crime and he's in prison, he's on death row, he's awaiting his execution, and a friend comes to visit him and he's, you know, they're hanging out in between that little glass thing where they talk on the phone, and uh, the friend says, hey, I've got great news for you. I've got good news for you. And the the guy, of course, eagerly, very excited, what? what? What's the news? And the guy says, just be good. (laughs) <laughs> the guy on you know the guy on death row is like that's one that's not even news and two that's not even helpful given my predicament <laughs> you know the unique thing that separates christianity from every other religion every other worldview every other philosophy is that it is it is not giving you a list of stuff that you have to do to get to god but it is the storyline of what god has done to get to you. It is first and foremost the accomplishment of, of the rescue mission of people who were in need that have been powerfully rescued. And the good news is the proclamation that it has been done. It has been accomplished. Every other religion, every other worldview, whether it's religious or not, says do this list of activity and avoid this list of activity. Adhere to this set of values and deny this set of values. And when you do, you're in the club. If you just do this, then you'll be okay. You'll be authentic. You'll be enlightened. You'll be saved. Whatever word you want to use within the system, it says do this and you're in. And the thing that about, that's different about Christianity is, it is it's never been that way. It, is, it has always been by pure and utter grace. It is the story of how God has rescued you. There's, there's, there's nothing you could have done in a position of being in, on death row. Why, why, are, why, why are these other systems, everything from Mormonism to atheism, why is every other system so attractive? It's because when you do the things... You follow the the rules. You do the list. You adhere to the right set of values. What does this do? This gives you all of the resources to feel good about yourself, to look down on others who don't do your set of values. And of course, uh, you're your own savior. You don't need somebody to save you if you've kind of climbed the totem pole yourself. But the thing that is uh, different about Christianity is that it's not a system. It's a story. The Bible is not a set of rules that you do, and when you do, you get to go to heaven. 
It's not, it's not a list of saying, hey, do this. Have this position uh, politically. You have to vote this way. Have this position about alcohol. Go to church every day. Read your, or every Sunday. <laughs> Go to, read, your, read your Bible every day. Do all of these things, and when you do, you get to you get to go to heaven. Because I got I got news for you. That's not good news. That's uh, that's bad news. Christianity is that uh, you have been saved by the work of Jesus, and there's nothing that uh, you could have done, no amount of rule keeping you could have done to earn your way there. So here's the question: Do you see Christianity that way? Do you see it as a list of data that you have to believe about God and when I do I'm in the club or a list of things that I have to do and when I do them that I'm in the club because the Bible is the good news is that you you can't do it but Jesus has done it for you and it took place in real space in real time in history so the first thing that you have to see about the story of scripture is that it is historical something has happened the good news is the proclamation that something has happened Second thing I want you to see about the storyline of the Bible is that it's personal. And I'm not going to take nearly as much time on that point, but uh, the story is not just this cosmic, huge, grand story of the universe. It also sweeps up into it our own personal, seemingly irrelevant lives. They actually do matter in the grand scheme of the story. So look at verse uh, 26 again. He says, brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that the message of salvation has been sent. If the message of salvation has been sent to us, what does that presuppose? Well, it presupposes that we were in need of saving. Okay, that's a nice Christian word. What in the world does that mean? Uh, I think it means, first and foremost, that something is broken in us, something is needing to be fixed, something is not right. And therefore, the message of salvation has been sent to fix that. Regina Spector's, uh, not her latest album, but her album before the new one, Begin to Hope, she has this song on there called uh, Hero. It's one of the bonus tracks. And she says this towards the end over and over. I'm the hero of the story. I don't need to be saved. I'm the hero of this story. I don't need to be saved. In other words, the story of my life is about me. I'm the protagonist of the story of my own life. I don't get why in the world I would need to be saved in the first place. Who would my story be about if it weren't about me? That's kind of the uh, thing that she's raising here. And it's a pretty honest observation if you think about it. If you think every decision you make is about you, the reason that you came to app is because you thought it would benefit you more than going to ECU, obviously. Uh, or if you, the, the, the reason that you chose your particular major is because this is for me. This is going to benefit me in some way. The reason some of you are in this room is because you wanted to hang out with certain people, check it out, or to you know, appease your roommate who drug you here against your will. But, but really, every decision that you make is, is really about you. And so when you take that a step further, you really can identify with the sentiment that Regina Spector has here. If you say, okay, Matt, I get that the gospel is the good news that I'm rescued from being saved, but it feels like my own storyline is not, I mean, it's not that bad. Yeah, I'm the protagonist. Yeah, everything's not perfect, but whose life is? And uh, what's the big deal with being, needing to be saved, whatever that means? Think about it this way. Um, some of you, most of you, I'm, I'm sure, have seen the movie Memento. Uh, great movie. 
Really confusing movie, but really awesome movie. It's basically a, a, a murder mystery. A, guy, a, a guy's wife gets, gets killed, and so the whole point of the story is him trying to figure out who killed my wife. But the interesting thing about the story is that he has partial amnesia. He's got like a short-term memory malfunction. And so he could be talking to you and like... Uh, you know, a couple minutes later, think he's like just met you for the first time. He's essentially a goldfish. He has, uh, he has no, uh, you know, he's got a short-term memory problem. And so, uh, you're experiencing the story from his perspective, and so it's it's very confusing, very frustrating. And on top of it, the movie is presented to you as being edited backwards. So it kind of begins with the last scene, and then you kind of work your way back up to the beginning of the story. It's a really awesome movie if you haven't seen it, but it's extremely confusing and you're extremely disoriented the whole time. On the bonus features of that DVD... <laughs> am, I, am I exposing my nerdiness? Uh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> the, the bonus features of that DVD, the writer slash director... Um, Slash, I don't know. Uh, he he tells the story, or he tells how he kind of got this idea, and he always thought it was an interesting concept to, to to make a movie to tell a story where you couldn't trust the narrator, to have an untrustworthy, suspicious narrator, and he couldn't figure out how to do it. And so one of his friends told him, or he somehow got this idea of the partial amnesia thing, and that was the instrument that he was able to use to tell a story that you as the viewer could not really trust the narrator because you're totally experiencing the story from the perspective of the you know uh, amnesiac guy. And, uh, and you totally feel that. You're totally disoriented. You can't really trust the clues that he's given himself. You're totally disoriented. You're totally frustrated the whole movie. Our stories are the same way. Here's what I mean. Uh, if you are living out your story, your life, from the perspective of you being the narrator, of you being the one that gets to call the shots of your own life, of you being the one that gets to set the agenda, the, the agenda and write the script of your own life, this is the reason why you're so confused and disoriented and frustrated. This is the reason you get lonely and depressed. This is the reason that you can't make the decision of, what, should I do this major or that major? Should I date this person, that person? This is why you, you can't answer some of these big questions because within the vantage point of the entire storyline of the universe, it's like we have amnesia. It's like we, we are in, in this tunnel vision trying to answer these huge big questions. What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? Why is all of this here? Why, what is the history uh, of of of, of the storyline of the world moving towards. We, we just don't have the resources to answer those types of questions from within the vacuums of our own stories. And so what we need is to, def, to, to, to have the terms of life set by the divine narrator himself, to be able to have him set the terms, hello, have him set the terms of, of life itself. Wow. We are off to a good start. Um, but some of, some of you get that. And some of you recognize, yeah, I want, I want God to be able to define my life. I want to fit my story into His story. I want Jesus to kind of come into my life. I will make room. Uh, I can squeeze Him into my schedule. I will let Him uh, kind of come in. And I will find a way to squeeze Him into my pre-existing 
template of what I've got going in my life. There is a pastor in New York whose name is Tim Keller, and he tells this illustration. If the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles, was reduced to the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance between earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. That's how big the galaxy is. And yet the galaxy is nothing but a speck of dust virtually in the whole universe. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ holds the universe together with the word of his power, his pinky, as it were. Is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? Some of you are living out your lives with you as the hero with you being the one that defines the terms for your own life, that sets your own agenda. And this is, uh, this is the reason that you will constantly be frustrated and disoriented and frustrated. We have to begin by admitting, as the story of Scripture confronts us and, and, and we encounter it, we have to begin by, meeting, by admitting, I need rescue. I need a hero. I can't figure out life on my own. I can't figure out the chaos of even college on my own. I need somebody to come in and set the terms for me, the divine narrator himself. The story of Scripture is absolutely personal. It's historical, it's personal, and lastly and quickly, it is transformational. Uh, Verse 38 and 39 real quickly. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Him... Everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. This is what it all comes down to. The story is historical and and personal, but it is deeply, deeply transformational. Your obedience to the law, your obedience to the set of rules, whatever rules you have crafted for yourself, whatever set of values you have crafted for yourself, even if they are good biblical ones, if you are approaching them from the framework of, I've got to do all this stuff, And when I do it, then I'm in the club. You will constantly be crushed by your own inability to do it. You'll constantly be crushed by your own sense of guilt. And at the end of the day, you will still be found guilty in God's court. This is why we're constantly insecure and confused. But what if? What if the divine narrator himself wrote himself into the story and came into it as a character in the person of Jesus Christ, lived the perfect life to give you his obedience to the law, to give you his track record, and die the death that you should have died, that I should have died, and, and, and died that gruesome death in your place, and was raised by God as God's way to sort of validate it and says, yes, it is accomplished, it is finished. This is the storyline of Scripture. If, you, if Jesus didn't do it all, if there's still room for you to have to work out your, your own salvation as far as Jesus not being able to accomplish it all, then the cross is an utter joke. And the cross is a failure. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, the end of that chapter, he says, if Jesus didn't die for you and accomplish everything that was necessary, then, then the cross is futile. Then everything that we believe is is you can throw it out. Because if there's even somewhat room left to have to appease a holy God, there's no chance. If, if Jesus didn't accomplish it all, then you can't say that it's good news. It's not even good advice. It's advice, but it's terrible advice. Given our predicament that we're in, 
we're on death row, and there's nothing we can do. But if the gospel really is good news, and if Jesus has accomplished the salvation of his people, then the cross is everything. Then the cross begins to start to transform you. How, though? It begins to restructure your very identity. Look at verse 48, and we'll end with this verse. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. They were glad. They rejoiced. They were filled with joy. Do you know what your biggest desire is? It's the same thing as your biggest fear, and it's to be known. Every one of you, including myself, so desperately at our core want to be known, want to be understood, want to be affirmed and accepted for who we are. But we're so terrified of somebody actually knowing us because we know that if they really knew me, if they really knew my junk, if they really knew what I thought about it, if they really know what I looked at on the internet, what I did on the weekends, what I did with my boyfriend or girlfriend, they would want nothing to do with me. This is why we wear the masks we do. This is why we try on different personalities to try and fit into different social groups. This is why we go from one group to the next because we're running, we're hiding, we don't want anyone to know us, but we want desperately somebody to know us. The gospel is is that Jesus died for sinners. What that means is that the Bible understands that you are sinful, that I am sinful, that we are broken, that we are messy, that we have junk and secrets and shame in our closets that we don't want anyone to know, and yet God knows it. And that's terrifying, because we would think He would want to run away from us if He knew it. But the gospel is that He sent His Son out of love and jaw-dropping, astounding grace to die for us. Because He doesn't run from us, He actually runs towards us. And when that begins to get in your mind and get in your heart and sink into your soul, that begins to totally transform you. Because when, you, when you're confronted with the depths of your own sinfulness, this totally crushes any claim that you could have had to self-righteousness, to, uh, hey, I'm the man, I did this, I, I kept this set of rules. It totally destroys all of that. You're crushed, but you're not in despair. You're, you're, you're rebuilt, crushed and rebuilt on the spot because you, because you see your sinfulness and you see God's love hitting you at the same time and that transforms you from people who are once insecure and confused and disoriented into people that are bursting out and gushing with joy and with confidence and with humility. This is where we're going this semester. We're going to be looking at the good news as it plays out in real time and real space throughout the story of Scripture. And I want to end with this question. If your story, if, you, if your life is, is a story, a real, live kind of movie in action, who is it about? Is it about you? Are you the hero of your story? Or have you submitted to King Jesus, the one who has rescued his people? Is, is your story about you or is it about him? That's the question I want to leave you with tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news that you have not left us on death row, but you have come and died the death that we should have died and lived the life that we couldn't live. To bring us to yourself, to redeem us, to fix what is broken, and to begin fixing not only ourselves, but everything that is broken and ruined in this world. And so we put our hope in you again, maybe for the first time, maybe for the eight millionth time. Be with us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing one more song.